Amen. Thank you for singing out. You may be seated. Now you can turn to Romans chapter 10 if you would like. I'm going to read verses 1 in chapter 10 through verse 13. We're going to look at verse 5. That's it this morning. And then next week we will look at 6 through 13. And right in the middle of the text for next week is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So we can just keep moving right on through Romans and still address the resurrection next week. But this is God's Word. Romans chapter 10. Brothers, or the generic use there, brothers and sisters, if your translation says that. That is accurate, by the way. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the, one, with the mouth one confesses. And is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thus far, God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, as we just confess, this is your word. Your spirit must apply your word. That we will hope, not in ourselves, in our own performance, but in you and in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, as we look into your word this morning, that any delusions of self-righteousness would be removed. So that we would hope, as I said, not in ourselves, but in you, Lord Jesus. So bless the preaching of your word. Help me to preach your word truly and accurately. Help us to hear it as your word. With a desire for it and a love for it. That we might understand it and live in its light. So bless the preaching and hearing of your word. Build your church. We give you the praise and we ask it. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Like the fascination that attracts the gnat to the candle that burns its wings, 
People by nature fly to the law for salvation and cannot be driven from it. The law can do nothing else but reveal sin and pronounce condemnation on the sinner. And yet we cannot get men away from it. Even though we show them how sweetly Jesus stands between them and it, they are so enamored of legal hope that they cling to it when there is nothing to cling to. A summary by Charles Spurgeon there of the righteousness based on the law that we will talk about and what he what Paul has been struggling over that his brethren the Jewish people have for the most part rejected the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ and have sought to establish their own through keeping the law men women boys and girls are born legalists thinking that we can do good and be good and do it well enough so that God will accept and love us But the Scriptures tell us that's not true. The Scriptures tell us that we will not be found righteous by our own efforts. If we are found righteous and accepted, it will be because of the efforts of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. So though men are tied to performance and tied to the law and tied to trying to make themselves right with God, When the Spirit works through that law, it brings people to the end of themselves. This is an anonymous quote I picked up. By coming to terms with my sin, I saw the beauty of Jesus Christ's sacrifice for the first time. By really understanding the perfect standard of the law and how far I fall short of keeping it, Losing all hope of saving myself, seeing the need for a Savior that was not me, and then finding that mercy of God available in Christ Jesus. I understood the beauty of Christ's sacrifice for the first time. What better thing to do on a communion Sunday than to strive to see the beauty of Christ's sacrifice? question is, how do we do that? Notice the first part of the quote again, by coming to terms with our sin. If we come to terms with our sin, the way the Bible would have us come to terms with our sin, we will not be relying on what Paul calls a righteousness that is based on the law. So we must rightly hear the law so that we despair of self-righteousness and hope in what we'll talk more about next week, the righteousness that is based on faith. See, we've been in a study of Romans and we've seen that Jew and Gentile need a Savior, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for the Jew and the Greek. And it is through faith in Jesus Christ alone that we are justified, declared righteous by God, pardoned for all of our sin and accepted as righteous in His sight through the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So we've seen justification by faith. We've seen sanctification put forward in good theology of sanctification in chapter 6 through 8, that we might be putting sin to death as followers of Christ and children of God. And then we've come through that great crescendo at the end of chapter 8 into Paul's burden for the Jews. He's burdened for his brothers and sisters 
in Israel, uh, according to the flesh, is burdened because they have rejected their Messiah for the most part. And so we've seen that the, the thesis statement for chapters 9 through 11 is, is chapter 9, verse 6, that the Word of God, even though only a remnant of the Jews believe, the Word of God has not failed. Why has it not failed? Well, we saw that great doctrine of election in chapter 9. Now we're seeing responsibility as well, that most of the Jews have refused to receive Christ and therefore receive the gift of righteousness. And Paul has repeated his burden in chapter 10 and talked about his zeal and his prayer uh, for Israel and for his, his brethren according to the flesh to come to faith in Jesus. And today, then, as we've already seen that contrast between hope in our own righteousness and hope in God's receiving his, the Jews seeking to be righteous through the law, he says this and connects it when he said in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law, the telos, the goal what it was pointing forward to. And then the second half of that verse, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So we'll open up. We'll open that up in six and following the end of verse four. But Christ being the end of the law, we talked a little bit about that last time. And then we're connecting with that in verse five this morning. And you hear me mention all the time that if we're going to be righteous before God, we have to be righteous in thought, word, and deed. Right? So when I saw this verse and when I thought about what we were doing this morning, I thought it would be it would be good to just expand upon that a little bit to just kind of try to show more of that. How it's not just God's not just judging us based on our external actions and the law is not just applying to our external actions, but it goes all the way to the heart. Right. We sin first in the heart before we ever sin with our bodies. So, titled this, this sermon from verse 5, Thought, Word, and Deed. And the main point is this. Righteousness based on the law requires perfection in thought, word, and deed. And really, this is what it means to come to terms with it. To understand the law. Coming to terms with the law and therefore my sin. When I understand that perfection is required, God doesn't grade on the curve. He is holy and must judge sin. That if I'm going to be accepted in His sight, I have to be righteous. And therefore, I can't hope in my own self. But He must give me the righteousness that He requires. And He does that in Jesus Christ. But this morning, we're breaking that out a little more. The righteousness based on the law requires perfection in thought, word, and deed. So, first point. Righteousness based on the law requires perfect thoughts. I don't know. I've never talked to a person that would look at me and say, I've always been perfect in my thoughts. I've never talked to a person that would want their thought life put on these TVs. Please don't do that, right? Even from today, right? Over the past week, the past month. Look at Romans 10.5 again. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, based on keeping the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So what is the righteousness that is based on the law? Well, he quotes there, and, and I, your version may or may not highlight that that's a quote from the Old Testament. But where's, where, he, where it says in the ESV, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. He's really quoting in, from Leviticus 18.5. 
And Leviticus 18.5 says this, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So what does it mean to do them then? What does it mean to do God's commandments? If we're going to live by, have life by, have righteous by doing the commandments, what does that mean? That's really what we're talking about this morning. Deuteronomy 27, 26. Paul quotes this in Galatians 3. I'll let you go read it. But he says, Cursed is everyone who is under the works of the law because of this particular curse from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm all the words of this law by doing them. If you're reading a New King James or a King James, you'll probably see, maybe an NASB, I can't remember there, you'll see the word all in italics, meaning it's not in the original, but that's really the thought behind what's being said here. So in the ESV, they don't give you that added help with that word in italics, but it's really what the verse is meaning. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm all the words of this law by doing them. So if you don't confirm, as Israel didn't, and if you don't, being a creature of God, confirm all the words of the commandments that I read earlier, you will be cursed by God. You have to confirm the law. By doing it, not just by talking about it, not just by picking and choosing, not by watering it down so you can keep it. If you're going to be righteous before God, you're either going to be one who has kept his law and thought word indeed, we'll see, or one who is trusting in Christ. And I would recommend the latter. Jesus summarized the law when he said this in, in Matthew 27, 22, 37 to 40. And he said to him, being asked about the greatest commandment, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love of God. Love of neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is not the gospel. It's the outflow of it. It's what we're called to because of it. We, we, it's not just enough to say all we need is love, as John Lennon said. Right? All we have to do is love one another. Well, we do need to love one another, but we won't be saved by our love. And when you see in verse 37 there, he said, you shall love the Lord. Now, watch this threefold breakout here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the Net Bible gives us a quote on that. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy 6, 5. And the threefold reference there. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That threefold reference, uh, referring to different parts of the person. What that's saying in effect is, one should love God with all of one's being. Literally there, it's what it's communicating when it's piling up those different different phrases, is that we, if we're going to love God, if we're going to be righteous by the law, if we're going to keep His law, we must love God with all of our being. And failure to do so is sin. And what does the Scripture say? The soul that sins shall die. Spiritually as well as physically. 
Physical death, yes, but then eternal death in hell is what we deserve. We have to embrace that. If you don't believe you deserve that, you don't understand yet the depth of our sin and against whom we have sinned. Failure to love God with all of our being by joyful. Here's what it means that John tells us to love God is to joyfully keep his commandments. Not frustratedly. Right? I know Cindy was keeping a little boy one time and I think she was telling him to eat his, his lunch. And he said, yes, ma'am, but I am very angry. <laughs> that wasn't loving Cindy. That was just grudgingly submitting to an authority. But loving God is joyful obedience to His commands. And loving God is loving Him with all of our being and fail to do so. Sin is any lack of conformity to God's law or any transgression of God's law. That's why sin in the New Testament is called lawlessness many times. Right? It's not obeying God's law out of love for Him. So, thoughts... Words and deeds are another way of summarizing the totality of who we are. And all of our words and deeds arise from our thoughts. The heart is the matter. Right? To be righteous by law, we must keep the law perfectly in every aspect of who we are, including our thoughts. So let's think just briefly. And these are brief. They're preacher talk, but they are somewhat brief. But let's just look at the law in regard to our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Right? Exodus 20:17 said, you shall not covet. And Paul said, that's the one that got me. We've seen that in chapter 7, right? He said, I wouldn't have known what coveting was if it hadn't been for that commandment. But when I really looked at that commandment, it produced in me all kinds of coveting. What is coveting? Well, basically, to strongly, desi- to strongly desire to possess something that belongs to your neighbor, thinking it will make you happy. To desire it to such an extent, you would steal it if you could. You would take it. You shall not covet. Coveting happens in the heart. In the mind, right? In the Hebrew, there's no difference between the heart and the mind. We'll see some more of that in in a bit. Westerners, we try to separate the two. My mind is different than my heart. Well, it's true that emotions and intellect are different. When the Bible's talking about the heart, it's talking about the core of who we are, right? You shall not covet. In your thought life, you shall not look to anything other than me for your satisfaction for your happiness. You shall not think wrongly. I mean, David encouraged Solomon in his thought life. He said this to Solomon. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Now watch. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. The heart is evidently planning and thinking, right? Serve the Lord with a whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek Him, He will be found by you, but if you'll forsake Him, He will cast you off forever. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I know, especially before I came to Christ, it was scary to me to think about God always seeing me, always knowing where I was and what I was doing. Knowing what I think, 
and what I desire before I think it and desire it. Knowing what I say before I would say it. It was uncomfortable to think about God knowing me to that depth. And maybe you've never thought about that. But, you know, there is no fig leaf to hide your nakedness from God. Adam and Eve tried. It's a very poor clothing design. God knows you better than you know yourself. He can see right through your justifications and your rationalizations and your yeah buts. Nothing is hidden from Him. We all will give an answer to Him. David said, The Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And really, that should be uncomfortable. And it is very uncomfortable without the gospel. If it's not, we're just fooling ourselves. Okay? But Jesus had some words on, on this. I'll read one in 15, Matthew fifteen nineteen. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Look at that. Thoughts can be evil or good. We, they can be sinful or not. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder. Adultery. Sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. That all starts in the heart. We sin in our hearts before we ever sin with our mouth or our body. To be righteous by law means, therefore, we must be perfect in thought. We must always think the right thing and never think the wrong thing. Always glorify God with our thoughts and never dishonor Him. Always think rightly about one another. And you fill on out the list, right? Always love God. Always rest in Christ. If we're going to fulfill the law, if we're going to be what verse 5 says... Uh, if we're going to have the righteousness that is based on the law, the first thing has to happen. Now, what, are, what is all this saying? We have to be pure in heart. Those of us who know Christ and in whom God has begun a good work, the day is coming when we're glorified that we will be perfectly pure in heart. But until then, we need the gospel every day. And if you're not trusting in Christ this morning, you really need to hear what I'm saying. And I pray that the Word and the law will convict you that you cannot be righteousness, righteous before God on your own because you failed the first test, and that's the thought life. We have not loved God with all of our thoughts. Number two, the righteousness based on the law requires perfect speech. And we... If we didn't get stopped by the thoughts, we certainly get stopped right here. You've always said the wrong thing and never said, I mean, said, yeah, that's more like it, isn't it? You've always said the right thing and never said the wrong thing, right? No. Ask your spouse. Ask your parents. Parents, ask your children. Sometimes children tell on parents. And sometimes they should. Look at the law. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, taking the name of the Lord in vain is more than speech. It includes life. But it does include speech. And a lot of people 
have taken the Lord's name in vain. And not just with maybe the one you're thinking about. I'm not going to say it. You know what I'm talking about. But if you ever say, Jesus Christ, flippantly like that, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. Why Why don't people say, oh, Buddha. Or, oh, Muhammad. They don't do that. There's something spiritual going on there. I had a, I used to work in the wholesale business and I was sitting in front of one of the buyers of H.T. Hackney in South Carolina. And he was sitting there and something frustrated him and he said, Jesus Christ. And I said, is Lord. And he looked up at me. He said, oh, I am so sorry. I said, it's not me you have to worry about. He said, I was flippant about that, right? I mean, he made a profession of faith. He claimed to be a believer, but it would see that looseness. Okay? Looseness of tongue dishonors the Lord. No corrupt communication is to come out of our mouths. Ephesians 4.29. Not even if you're in the Marine Corps. And I know that's a hard place. Foul mouth is almost expected of you. It was with my group. I grew up too. We weren't Marines. We were juvenile delinquents. But same thing. I wondered if that would wake you up. I'm joking. You know I have much appreciation for my Marine brothers and sisters. I made that mistake for. But sometimes brand new young Marines are kind of the same thing. So, Yes, I have counseled some of them. That woke you up, didn't it? I'll get talked to after the service after that one. Exodus 20:16 You shall not shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. There's another speech that we fail again. And that's not just talking about court cases. That's talking about lying. We are to be people of truth. Whenever something's forbidden, the opposite duty is required. Right? So we're to honor the Lord, honor his name, not be people of falsehood but people who glorify God. So without Christ, we can see all of this is futile. If, if we were going to keep the law in our speech life, we would have to do it in perfection in order to be made right with God. If we've ever taken the Lord's name in vain, one time is enough to fail being righteous according to the law. If we've ever lied one time, and the Bible says children come from the womb speaking lies. And we think it's cute sometimes, don't we? The law requires perfect speech, and Jesus applied his teaching to the words as well. Listen to this. This is, this is scary, and it should be, but it, we're not going to be justification by faith alone. Don't forget the gospel, right? But outside of that, Matthew 12, 36 to 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Not one of our words skips the Lord's notice. To be righteous by the law means we must be perfect in our speech. And then, of course, our outward actions, number three. The righteousness based on the law requires perfect actions. 
Exodus 20:14, you shall not commit adultery. So we know that in its external form, adultery is an external act. But, but Jesus talked about that, right? He said, if you've looked on another person with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. It starts in the heart, but it goes all the way out to the deeds. Adultery is a big thing. Adultery, like all of the other Ten Commandments, when you read the Ten Commandments, think of them as genus of a species, each one of them. So every, every one of those things that are forbidden is a figurehead of a whole class of sins. Sexual immorality is figureheaded by adultery in the commandments. So what he is forbidding here is sexual immorality. Not honoring God. I don't think you have to put your hands over your child's ears right now. But sexual intimacy is reserved for those in marriage. A man and a woman in holy matrimony. All other sexual enticement and expression is sin. It is forbidden by God and His commandments. That might be more narrow than you want to be, but that is truth. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That's in Hebrews chapter 13, if you want to read it. Sexual immorality being an external act, like a lot of others in the list, murder, idolatry, you know, all of those things that start in the heart and end up in physical expression. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians six eighteen to 20. And listen, I'm going to tell you why I'm addressing this. Because of these things. And how easy access to pornography is. And I have actually had people try to justify looking at pornography. Christian people. Because their spouse did it with them. Spouse was okay with it. Jesus says, if you look on another person with lust, you've committed adultery. Pornography is sin. It is sexual immorality. And if you're having a problem with that, we need to talk about that because it's one of the things we need to be repenting of and putting to death. Right? We live in a laissez-faire culture. Living together outside of marriage is sin, is wrong. Any form of physical excitement with one another is sexual immorality and it is wrong. And somebody needs to stand up and tell people about that. That is... I can't. Purity is what we're called to. Purity of heart. Thoughts. Purity of words. And certainly purity of deeds. And the marriage between a man and a woman is the appropriate place for sexual intimacy. And that even is a picture of the intimacy between Christ and His church. And anything else is a pollution of that. I don't care what the culture says. And I don't care what laws they pass or what jail sentences they meet out. God's Word is true. Jesus Christ proved that by His resurrection. And Paul says, and Jesus says, flee from sexual immorality. 
1 Corinthians 6, 18-20. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own Christian. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The culture we currently live in, in this world and in America, is nowhere near as debauched as the one Paul was living in when he wrote that. It's going that way. But in the midst of that darkness, God says, purity. He has not reduced his standards and that command to not commit adultery applies to all sexual immorality. And if we would make ourselves righteous before God, we will be sexually pure. If you, again, are struggling with, you fill in the blank. We won't limit it to Pornography or sexual immorality. Listen, come talk to us. We're not going to condemn you and hit you over your head. We're going to help you get free. But we're going to hold you to God's standard, which is the Word, and for purity. To be righteous by the law means we must be perfect in our actions. So if we're going to be righteous by the law, thought, words, and deeds must be perfectly in accord with God's law out of love for Him and a desire to glorify Him. So being created in the image of God, we are created with the responsibility to glorify God by keeping His commandments in all of our thought life, with all of our words, and with all of our deeds. We are to perfectly love God and neighbor by keeping all of His law, or we will experience a just condemnation by a holy God. So I ask you this morning, do you think you are good enough on your own to be accepted by God? And if you do, I'm going to beg you to rethink that before you stand before Him and find Him delving into your thoughts and your words and your deeds and showing you how far you fall short. See, here's God's verdict, and I don't have to make it up. We've already seen it in Romans when we were in chapter 3. As far as being compared, listen, we're not going to be compared with one another. And yes, Christ is the comparison, but that's because Christ lived out this law in thought, word, and deed. He was perfectly righteous. As to being righteous on our own, in Romans 3, 10 to 12, it says this, as it is written in quotes from the Old Testament as well, Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Look at this. In and of ourselves, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. None does good. No one does good. Not even one. And when you, when you think about what God's law requires and the high hurdle that it is, perfection in thought, word, and deed, then you can see better how He could be quoting scriptures and saying such things. Because we all know we haven't been perfect in thought, word, and deed. 3.23 in chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we'll talk about next, what it goes on to say, we'll talk about next week, and are justified freely as a gift through the grace that is in Christ Jesus.
So just a few points of application and we'll move on towards communion. Number one, as you read God's law, first you must see your failure. The law is not a ladder you can climb to heaven. It's a mirror that reflects on you the perfect righteousness that God requires. And that mirror is meant to teach you that you are out of whack. It's like you get up in the morning out of bed and go look in that mirror. And if you have a lot of hair, it might be going this way and that way. And makeup might be smeared or whatever. We must see, we must embrace the fact, we must come before the Lord like Isaiah did when he saw his glory and say, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Isn't that what he confessed? And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. See, this is the first use of the law. It is to show us that we cannot be righteous by keeping the law. Listen, familiar with medical terminology, the law is an x-ray into our soul. Oh, it goes past our externals. We can clean those up and look good every once in a while. It goes into the heart, revealing the heart, what we trust, what we love, what we're pursuing, whether we're glorifying God and we're not. The law is meant to put us, as the old preacher said, in a shut-up. It's meant to shut our mouths. It's meant to stop our excuses. Look what Paul says in Romans 3, 19 to 20. We've already seen this in our study. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that, watch this, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now watch how he continues there. For by works of the law, by trying to keep the law, trying to establish this righteousness that is based on law. If we're trying to do that, he he says this, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. One of the reasons the church is so weak these days and so populated by people who make a profession of faith but don't know the Lord Jesus Christ is because a while back, for some reason, the church quit preaching the law. And when the church quit preaching the law, it quit preaching the gospel. Because the the gospel makes no sense. Biblical sense, holy sense, without an understanding of the law and our failure and our need of a Savior. Nobody will be justified through keeping the law. It's meant to stop our mouths, to see our failure. Why? So we'll look outside ourselves for a Savior. So this clearly, number two, shows us why Christ came. See, now you're ready to see the beauty of Christ in the law. You haven't kept it. You have broken it, but He kept it for you. And His righteousness is imputed to you by faith and faith alone. When you trust in Christ, you are pardoned for all of your sin and accepted as righteous because His real righteousness is gifted to you. It's credited to your account. Perfect righteousness. One righteousness. Christ did it for us, for His people. We saw this in chapter 3, 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We're pointing to Jesus. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Why did Christ come? 
Well, he came first to live in fulfillment of all righteousness, to keep the law perfectly in thought, word, and deed, because we had broken it. And then he went to the cross to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay. He took the condemnation due us. That's why there's none left for us, Romans 8, 1. Christ, Scripture says Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and raised the third day. Salvation is through trusting in him, turning from unbelief to belief, from pursuing self in my own way to his way, so that I repent, change of heart and mind, change of direction of the soul, and turn and trust in and receive the Lord Jesus Christ and his free gift of righteousness. Our sin imputed to him, and he paid the penalty and said, It is finished. His righteousness imputed to us such that now our record reads perfect righteousness and the Father can pronounce over us righteous and accept us into his family. That is the righteousness based on faith that we will talk about next week. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. Listen, you've got to get to the place where you own that in and of yourself what you deserve from God is condemnation. You deserve death, physical and spiritual. You deserve hell. But if you will look out by His grace and for His glory, if you will look outside yourself to Christ, look to Christ, Spurgeon was told when he was converted. If you will look to Christ and trust in Him, then there's a free gift for you. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, you can't earn it, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Our Lord. So by coming to terms with my sin, I see the beauty of Christ's sacrifice. Maybe for the first time. Have you come to terms with your sin? Have you turned from self-hope to Christ's hope? Are you trusting in Jesus for eternal life? If so, you see the beauty of Christ and you have salvation and eternal life in Him. Hope not in righteousness that is based on the law, but as we'll talk about next week, the righteousness that is based on faith. To live is Christ. Lord, have mercy on us. Your gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Your spirit works through the gospel to bring us to life and therefore to repentance and faith in Christ. So that's what I pray you're doing this morning. Through the live stream, through the recording, in here in the building, those who don't know you, that by your grace and for your glory and according to your precious sovereign will, that you would save souls this morning. Convert souls. And then for those of us who know you, may this just be a reminder that we can rest in Christ because our acceptance before your judgment bar is not dependent upon our works, but upon our Savior's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Even the faith that we have is a gift from you. And it can be weak faith. And it often is weak faith. But it's in the right place in the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us to hope and rest in Christ and in Christ alone. And as we prayed earlier, give us a burden for the lost, Lord, and send us out with this gospel on our lips. Lord, have mercy on us that we might hope fully in you 
And from that stance, seek to joyfully live for you. It is in Jesus' name that I pray.